you will take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of that chapter today, Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you're new to us, we have been working through the book of Romans uh, for a good while now, and we find ourselves today in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Eric, thank you again for sharing with us today, and we will certainly be praying for you and Kate and your family as you continue to minister there at Penn State. It's always a joy to hear from you, brother. And uh, we're thankful uh, to the Lord for you all. So thank you for being with us today. Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is what God's Word says. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray together. Father, would you help us now as we consider your word? Would you, as we've just sung, plant it deep in us and cause it to bear fruit for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you you that know me well, you know that I like a good cup of coffee. I'm not responsible for the name brand that we serve here at Redeeming Grace, but I do like good coffee. Um, And there's quite a process involved from getting coffee from where it grows to getting it to your cup. Now, I'm no expert on that process, but just the little bit of knowledge that I do have always makes people dangerous, but I kind of understand the process. And coffee undergoes quite the transformation to get it from one place to the next. A coffee bean is not a bean at all. It's actually a seed. Begins growing on a coffee tree of some kind in various different countries in the world. I believe Ethiopia was the place that it was historically known to originate from, where people were known to first drink it. Coffee actually grows on a tree, and it's actually, in its beginning stages, is a red cherry-like looking thing. It's a little seed. You could almost think of if you've seen a dogwood bud. Uh, that's kind of what a coffee bean bud seed, whatever you want to call it, looks like. It's red when it's ripe and ready to pick. And most, in most places throughout the world, it's hand-picked because it, of the various terrain that's involved. And I think Brazil is one of the few places where they actually use machinery to harvest beans. But it's actually hand-picked in most of the country where it's, once it's picked, it's then dried until the red color goes away and it, and it begins to be a, more of a greenish-brown, light-brown kind of color. Then it's bagged. I'm, I'm skipping many steps, I realize. But then it's basically put in a bag and it's shipped to wherever people drink coffee. St. Mary's County. Once it's here, sometimes before, it undergoes the process, what we call roasting, where the bean is then heated to well over 500 degrees, and it's at that point that it undergoes that color change. The, the bean or the seed kind of pops open, it cracks open, and then it, it gets its dark brown color. It's roasted at that point, after which it needs to be ground for the hot water to go over and to make a good cup of coffee. Let's just take a break and go right now, okay? I mean, I'm thinking, this just sounds really good. Uh, so it's quite the process quite the process to get from that little red seed on a tree to that 
black drink in your cup. You know, I thought about coffee, and I thought, you know, it needs to undergo quite the changes if, if it's going to be useful to us. You know, and I didn't want to say Christians are like coffee. We're not. But I thought in a very similar way, for a Christian to be useful, for a Christian to be a Christian, for a Christian to be what God created us to be, we must undergo a transformation, a change. As we come to Romans chapter 12 today, we're going to see this change that we're called to embrace. We make our way to the book of Romans chapter 12. We turn a corner, if you will. We've talked about this as we've been approaching this chapter. After 11 chapters of unpacking the marvelous riches of God's amazing, beautiful, sovereign grace and mercy, we now come to this turning point in Romans after this amazing buffet of, of, of this amazing feast of grace, we now see what grace does in the life of the believer as it takes hold of us. As we've said before, the first 11 chapters of Romans we could summarize by saying this is describing a church that is saved by grace. And now in chapters 12 through 16, we're going to see how we as Christians and as a church, we are shaped by grace. We've been saved by grace and now we are being shaped by grace. I love what D.A. Carson says about these first two verses of Romans 12. He says of them that these two verses capture the heart of what it means to live as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, as, as the people of God, we are called to give our lives entirely over to the Lord so that we can be transformed and live according to the will of the Lord. That's really what these two verses are saying. We are called to give our lives over to the Lord, entirely to the Lord, so that we can be transformed by grace and live according to the will of God. We are saved by grace and we are shaped by grace. We call this gospel obedience. We don't obey in order to be saved. We are saved in order that we would obey. It's exactly how Romans is set up. It's exactly how the gospel works. And that's exactly what these verses communicate to us today. Notice Paul begins in, this, in, the, in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I appeal to you. He's, he's saying, I urge, I'm pleading with you. Friends, this is not a recommendation. This is not a suggestion. Paul is making. By the way, I think this might be a good idea for your life. He is pleading. He is appealing. He is urging the brothers and sisters in Rome, and now by extension, but Holy Spirit brings this word to us. It's a plea that we would be shaped by the riches of God's grace, that we might reflect the character of God, and that we might bear fruit for the glory of God. So we're going to look at four aspects of gospel obedience this morning from two verses. Four aspects of gospel obedience that ought to motivate us towards this obedience to which we are being called. So let's look at this together. First of all, we're going to see the basis of gospel obedience, the, the foundation, the basis of this 
call to live. We know this is a transition verse, don't we? We know it because of the word therefore found in verse 1. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. But what he's about to say has a direct connection to everything he said prior. Don't just think, okay, chapter 11 is finished. We're going to set aside the gospel for a minute, and now we're going to get super practical. And, and I think Christians sometimes mistakenly think that that's what they do with the gospel. We're saved by it. Okay, let me just put that on the shelf now, and let me get to really deep stuff of the Christian life. Don't ever think that way. You never graduate from the gospel. You need the gospel just as much today as you've ever needed it. That's why we sing it. That's why we pray it. That's why we preach it. That's why you Christians need to be reminded afresh and anew every single day that God has saved you, that he has plucked you up by his grace, and that he has fitted you in in garments of righteousness. He has cleansed you by the blood of Christ to make you a new creation. And that never grows old. That never grows old. So everything that he has said now is going to inform and shape what he says now in these two verses and beyond. So Paul's exhortation now is based upon everything I've already said. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Romans 1 through 11. There's a lot of them. Based upon 11 chapters of deep, solid, beautiful grace and mercy based upon these truths. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, the basis of gospel obedience is the gospel, is the mercies of God, is the grace of God. This foundation of obedience. He says, I appeal to you, I urge, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, that by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul recognizes that the outpouring of God's grace, his mercy in the life of the believer, is the driving catalyst for a life that is to be given fully over to the Lord. Friends, we could spend the rest of the sermon unpacking the mercies of God, but we've done that since September, haven't we? We've been unpacking week after week after week after week the mercies of God. So here's a basic summary of all that's been stated in verses 1 through 11. Just a simple overview here. Verse, in chapter 1, verse 16, we, we're told we've been given the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. In chapter 3, we're told that we were forgiven and justified. Chapter 4, we were counted righteous. Chapter 5, verse 10, we were once enemies, now reconciled. Chapter 5, verse 15 through 19, we've been given the free gift of grace. Chapter 6, we've been united with Christ. Chapter 8, we have no condemnation. We've been given the Holy Spirit. God's working all things for good to make us like Jesus, and we will never be separated by his love. All of these and much more constitute the mercies of God. So it's in view of these mercies, it's in view of these amazing, glorious truths that our life ought to be poured out then as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, we could come up with many good motives as to why we ought to be faithful to God. We could come up with many good motives as to why we ought to be living in obedience to the Lord. We, we could come up with many ones. We could think about uh, the future judgment that awaits us. We know that we're going to be judged. We could think about future judgment as a motivation as to why we ought to know Jesus and walk with him. It's a good motive. 
We could talk about present discipline. We know that, according to Hebrews, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And so, a good motivation, right? Think, think about it from a kid's perspective. You know, want to obey mom and dad? Because if I don't, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be chastised. I'm going, I'm going to be dealt with in some, some way. Well, God does the same thing to his children. So that perhaps could be a motive as to why we ought to live faithful, obedient lives. We could think about future reward, right? That God is going to reward his people for the things that they do in this life. Again, all of these are motives, but friend, the compelling motivation, the compelling motivation that ought to lead us to give ourselves entirely to the Lord is the fact that we have been recipients of mercy. That is why we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, the biblical order, you have to get it right. It's mercy, then obedience, not obedience in order to get mercy. And surely this is a good reminder that we should never take our eyes off the gospel. Notice he says, by the mercies of God, or it could be translated, in view of the mercies of God. By God's grace, may the mercies of God never be lost from our sight. We need to be reminded of these mercies. We need those mercies every day, but we need to be reminded of those mercies, of all that God has done for us, all the promises that we have in Christ, because it is that which compels and props us up and leads us forward in obedience. So the basis of obedience is the gospel. The basis of gospel obedience is the mercies of God. Point number two, the essence of gospel obedience. We see that also in verse one. Paul's exhortation here is that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he concludes, which is your spiritual or reasonable or rational worship. Let's break this down a bit. He calls us to be a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, we think about sacrifice, we, we have Old Testament language that rings in our ears, don't we? Especially if we've been in the Bible very long, we know that in the Old Testament, there's a whole sacrificial system where the worshiper would come to the temple or the tabernacle, they would bring with them a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would be killed. The sacrifice would have blood shed on the altar in order that that worshiper could have some kind of atonement for his or her sin. There were many different kinds of sacrifices based upon many different kinds of reasons. Different kinds of sins. It's all laid out for us in the law. And so when we think about sacrifice, we think about a sacrifice that was brought and given over to God. Well, we know when Jesus came that there's now no longer a need for this ongoing kind of sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. He came, he lived, he died for our sake. He was the fulfillment of all sacrifices when his blood was shed there was no need for another so that we could be forgiven and welcomed to the presence of God we could be reconciled but really what Paul is is getting at here he's 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 not saying you need to be like that that you need to come to church and and somehow be sacrificed. That's not what he's saying. And he, he's, he's getting at something more because notice he qualifies this sacrifice. He says it's a living one. 
It's, it's a different kind, isn't it? It's, it's a living sacrifice. Again, the, the, the fact that we're to be a sacrifice means that we're to be living. We, we've been made alive to God. In chapter 6, verse 11, we, we, we saw that in Romans. If you go back to chapter 6 and you read in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've been made alive, therefore we are to be a living sacrifice, which means that we're to be a people who are given over for the purposes and praise of God. You know, the, the fact that we're to be a sacrifice doesn't mean so much offering a sacrifice as being one. Paul's not asking that we somehow give something we possess. Rather, he's calling us to give our entire lives, our bodies, our whole life. We're to be a holy sacrifice, one that's set apart for the service of the Lord. And then he concludes, this is your spiritual or reasonable worship. Basically, he's saying it's only fitting that you live this way. The, the logical conclusion of a person that has been saved in a Romans 1.11 kind of way by the grace and mercy of God alone, the logical conclusion, the, the rational conclusion would be that you would be a person that lives out the rest of your life, your entire body, for the glory and the purposes of God. A life that's given over to the service of God. And that is what we could define as worship. A life that is given over to the service of God. When Paul uses the term worship here, he's not referring to a worship service. Although this can happen in a worship service, he's not referring to a worship service, a, a gathering of Christians where they sing and pray and hear God's word. He's actually teaching us that worship is not confined to what we do on Sunday. Although it takes place here, he's basically saying worship is an all-of-life response to mercy we've received through Jesus Christ. That means that every part of our life is to be engaged in worship. Bob Coughlin, he's a worship leader, wrote this in a book called True Worship. He said, worship isn't something we simply feel. Worship isn't the name we give some experience that we seek while singing, lifting our hands or closing our eyes. It's something we do with our bodies in all of life. We can worship God through our eating, our drinking, our typing, our speaking, our cooking, our driving, and countless other ways. We worship God wherever we perform an act out of a desire to draw attention to His greatness especially revealed in sending his son as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Worship, friends, is happening all the time. Many of us probably said, we're going to go to worship this morning. What we didn't realize is that we were already engaged in it. We're just going to go get with a bunch of other Christians and do it together. That's what this is. Worship is like breathing. It's always happening. So whether you're evangelizing, whether you're serving, whether you're giving, whether you're speaking, get this, whether you're tweeting, 
or snapping or whatever it is you do, you are engaged in some kind of worship. It's the essence of gospel obedience is worship. That our lives are to be marked as a living sacrifice. Let's unpack that a bit more as we think about number three, the pattern of gospel obedience. What we have is, is, is a command here, really a, an exhortation in verse 1, and then he, he, he describes it further of how that is to come about in verse 2. He says, by the mercies of God, present, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is, this is what makes sense when you think about God's mercy. And then in verse 2, he explains it further, what it looks like in life. The pattern of gospel obedience, verse 2. And it can simply be summarized in, in two phrases. Do not be conformed, be transformed. A negative and a positive, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's think about that for a few minutes. First of all, the pattern of gospel obedience involves a nonconformity to the world. This is Christian nonconformity. We could spend a long time on what this looks like and what it means. In fact, as we continue in Romans, it's going to flesh these things out in specific examples and relationships with other Christians and how we treat people and how we submit to authorities and on and on we can go and and. In the, in the remaining chapters we have in Romans. We're called to a non-conformity. We're to not conform to this world. What is the world referring to here? One of the things we have to realize when we're in the Bible, the word world can mean a variety of different things. And here Paul is using the word world to refer to this age, which involves many different things. It's this age. Another way we think about it is the sin-dominating realm to which we all, by the way, naturally belong. We were born into it. This includes the beliefs and philosophies of the fallen world. So when he refers to the word world, he's talking about this age which is dominated by sin and influenced by ungodly philosophies and beliefs. Paul is calling us to not be conformed to that. You've been saved out of that, so don't go back to it. I love uh, the J.B. Phillips translation where he explains this verse this way. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. You know, I, I like coffee, but I also like a good breakfast, which includes good biscuits. Biscuits and gravy. Some of you missing out all these years. When you think about making biscuits, whether you're, you're making them from scratch, I'm not talking about the cheating way where you get the can out and you rip it off and you have to pop it and all that stuff. That's cheating. But I'm talking about homemade biscuits. You get all this, the material out and, and, and you can lay out the, roll out the, um, the material there and, and, and the batter and all of it that goes into it. You can tell I don't make it because I don't know what's in it. Uh, and then what happens usually is you get some kind of cookie cutter and you begin to, some round thing, to, that you begin to make the shape of the biscuit, right? And you put them on the pan and you put them in the oven and they 
fries, and they're delicious, right? Amen. Well, even if you're not using a cookie cutter, you would shape or mold them with your hand, right? They may not be exactly round, but you're going to mold them with something, whether it's your hand or whether it's a, a device that's a particular shape. And out come these biscuits. And you can think about the world in that way. The world is, is really a massive conveyor belt that is producing constantly biscuits, if you will, or cookies, or whatever you want to come up with, of kinds of people that look like it. It's molding them, it's shaping them in its image, and it wants them to reflect its beliefs and its values and its character. It's working hard to shape you into its mold, and if you do not believe that, friend, you are gravely mistaken. Every second that goes by, this world, this age, is working overtime to mold you, to shape you into its way of living and thinking. Now, we will often find this command, do not be conformed to this world, challenging because many of the people we love, many of the people we like, are conformed to this world. And it's hard. When some of our dearest family members and some of our closest friends or acquaintances that we really like, they are the quintessential expression of someone that is conformed entirely to this world. And we're called to not be like that. So this means oftentimes we're going to stand out, doesn't it? We're going to look different. We're going to say things that are radically different than what the world would say, etc. So the question is, is this then a call for us to be weird, obnoxious rebel rousers? No. It's not. Let me quote the late R.C. Sproul. He said, some people interpret this passage to mean that the real test of spirituality is to show the whole world that we are out of it in the sense of being irrelevant, insignificant, odd, and peculiar. That is not what Paul is thinking about here. But we are conformist from the time we are born until the time we die. We always feel peer pressure, the tug and struggle to be in line with contemporary tastes and standards. That's why watching contemporary culture and its customs is a very dangerous way for a Christian to educate his or her own conscience. Because something that may be part of the acceptable standard of life in a given community may be radically alien to the kingdom of God. Christ calls us to a special kind of nonconformity, a refusal to conform to the sinful patterns of this world, to patterns of disobedience. Is when we think about nonconformity, it's not an automatic, we're going to look weird, and we will, probably will sound obnoxious at times, and we will probably to the world seem like rebel rousers. It's not a call to do that just to make everybody mad. It's called to live as Christ called us to live, and by default, that's what we're going to seem like to the world. And there, there's so many things that, that come to my mind when I think about nonconformity, and, and one of them are dangers with it. The danger here, of course, is that we could go the way of legalism as an attempt to not conform. 
We can come up with a lot of rules and regulations that the Bible never has as a definition of this is what it looks like. Churches do this all the time. Here's our list of what it looks like to not conform to the world. And if you're not doing these things or if you're doing these things, whatever the list is, if you're not doing this, then you're not doing Romans 12 too. When the Bible has nothing <laughs> to say about these particular items we've just come up with. So the danger, of course, when we think about nonconformity is that we can go the way of legalism and seek to define nonconformity in a way that the Bible does not. So we need to be careful about that. But at the same time, we need to be on guard against this progressive movement within Christianity that says the world is changing and so we must change with it. Equally dangerous. Begins to see the Bible as outdated and not in line with the times. Ideas have changed, therefore we must change with it. That's not the call to the Christian. Friends, we often mishandle nonconformity. That's my warning to us. Do not be conformed to this world. That's the command. But don't abuse it. Don't think that that means that we need to yell at everybody that, we are, that opposes us. Or that we silently go their way. Both are wrong. And both are a grave mistake of what this verse is calling us to. While we must speak the truth into the public square, we must also realize that nonconformity doesn't mean cutting people off and tearing them down when they disagree with us. Frankly, I am exhausted just watching Christians on social media act like fools. I'm sick of it. It's embarrassing. Some of the things that we say. We look like idiots. That's not this kind of do not be conformed to this world. When you start spouting off and yelling at people and screaming and all of these things that we see today. Don't be a fool. Don't be unwise and ungracious in how you present yourself in this world. Don't be conformed to it. You're not, you're, it's not your job to condemn it. That's God's job. Your job is to love it and to share the hope that it has in Jesus Christ. Yes, there will be times where we have to stand firm against uh, abuses of Scripture. That we're going to, there are going to be many times where there are moral issues that we must go to, to, to combat over. But even how we do that matters. We must not cut people off and tear them down even when they disagree. And we must not silently go their way either. Friends, you can stand for your convictions and be compassionate at the same time. Do not be conformed to this world. We're going to unpack what all that looks like as we continue in Romans. But be transformed by renewed minds. Do not be conformed, be transformed. That's the calling that we have as Christians. That's what it looks like to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The way that this change happens is through the transformation that comes about through renewed minds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
verse 18, Paul says that we are being transformed into his likeness, the likeness of Christ, with an ever-increasing glory. This word transformed is where we get the word metamorphosis. It's a radical change of form. Listen, and this is where the legalists get it wrong. Your goal as a Christian is not merely nonconformity. Your goal as a Christian is to be transformed. Your goal as a Christian is to be renewed. It's to be changed. It's not just to stop doing these things. I, mean, we can, I can teach my dog to do that with enough treats, right? Stop doing that. Friends, our, 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 our goal as a Christian is not merely nonconformity, it is transformation. And here Paul tells us that transformation begins, yes, with a new heart, but also by a changed mind, a renewed mind. So then it matters what you put into your mind. Friends, Christianity is a thinking faith. It's not a so many think it's just a feeling faith. Feelings are an important part of it. It's a thinking faith. I think some people err on both sides. They overthink and they underfeel, or some overfeel and underthink. Right thinking leads to right feeling and doing. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this again in a very, to a very different church, but He's getting at the same thing. He says in chapter 4, beginning verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Do not be conformed. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their, what? Understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not how you learned Christ. Think of all of these references to the mind and the heart here that Paul is getting at. That is not how you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We could also go to the book of Colossians chapter 3. He says there, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, put to death these things and put on these things. Friends, if, if the only thing you think as a Christian you should do is quit doing these sins and start doing these things, that's, that's simple behavior modification. I mean, the psychologist can get us to do that. The key element that ties those two together is the renewal of your mind. New desires and new ways of thinking and new ways of belief are part of this process of transformation where you begin thinking a different way than you used to think. And as you begin to think in a different way, your life begins to be shaped in a different way. If you think becoming a Christian means you're going to stop living this way today and start living this way today, you're going to be discouraged. 
That's, that's usually not how it works. God can do that. Transformation is a process. And it, revol- it involves the renewal of your mind. Friends, godly living will only happen with right thinking. It's the things we believe, the things we think, the things we hold dear in our hearts that in turn influence and direct where we go and what we do. That means if we want to get our living right, we must get our thinking right. How do we do that? Regular contact with God's Word. Regular contact with the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, listen, you will not survive as a Christian in this world if you rarely open your Bibles. If the first time you opened your Bible this week was this morning, you're like a weak and feeble man or woman walking on a thin layer of ice that at any moment will crumble beneath you and take you out. You will not survive in this world if you are not regularly in the Scriptures. That's why corporate worship must be a priority, where you sit under the preaching of God's Word. That's why discipling opportunities are so vital. That's why people at Penn State need to be discipled. That's why people in St. Mary's County need to be discipled. That's why personal study time in the Scriptures is vital. Again, we're not legalistic. We're not going to define for you how many hours and days and what that looks like. But friends, regular contact with the Scriptures is absolutely essential for your mind to be renewed so that new ways of thinking can be instilled within you so that different ways of living will transpire, which, which, by the way, is proof of whether or not you have been saved by mercy. If you're going to be shaped by mercy, you need to be saved by mercy. And that will, in turn, play itself out in your life. So what does all this result in? What does all this lead to? Well, we see it there in the text. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, be a living sacrifice. And the way that you do that is you're not conformed. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't think like the world thinks and don't live like the world thinks. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So you may be able to test, discern the will of God, which leads me to point number four in our final point, the aim of gospel obedience. The aim, so that we may do the will of God, to the glory of God. Notice the sequence here, renewed minds to testing, to discerning or approving what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now God's will here doesn't so much refer to uh, uh, things like what job should I apply for or who should I marry. But rather is the fact that God's way is the best way and we truly want that. It's what he's after. Friends, that comes through regular contact with the scriptures. As your mind is renewed. I love what, again, to to quote R.C. Sproul, he he said, there's no magical way to know the will of God apart from the word of God. There's no way for you to do Romans 12, 1 and 2 without this. No way. 
The Holy Spirit inspired this. The Holy Spirit is present and living in you to help you understand it and help you to apply it and help you to live it out. So that you know and are able to test and discern what is good and right and true. Friends, we need to keep in mind that often the case that God's will and the world's way do not agree. They don't look the same. If you find yourself struggling as a Christian because everything that you seem to be doing as you seek to be faithful to the Lord seems to be in contradiction of everything the world wants you to do, well, that's, that's how it's set up. Holiness is not something the world embraces. Righteousness is not something the world wants. That plays itself out in so many areas, whether it's issues of gender and sexuality or relationships you should pursue or how you spend your money or how you teach your kids or how you treat employees or how you pursue success. And the mold of the world is powerful. But that doesn't mean it's the right way. Proverbs 16.25 said, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a lot of people in this world who want to tell you that their way is the right way. And that way may very well kill you and everyone else with it. There are many things that seem right to man. There are many things that seem right to us, yet we, we actually want to go the way that's true, don't we? For the mercies of God produce in us a life that is to be devoted to God all of our life entirely given over to the Lord. That's what this calls us to. Friend, you may be here today as as an unbeliever. Maybe you're not not a Christian. We're always thrilled to have you with us. We're always thrilled to have non-Christians here. And my, my, my counsel to you would just simply be this. Friend, consider the mercies of God. That's where you should begin, is just consider the mercies of a good and holy God. That's what you need. These mercies are for people just like you and just like us. Friends, the greatest demonstration of mercy this world will ever know is when God sent his one and only son into this world to save the world. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Friend, as, a, as an unbeliever, would you look to this Christ today and find mercy? That's what this passage would call you to. Don't try to start living in a, in a way that, to try to get credit with God. Okay, I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be, I know I'm not a Christian, and so I'm going to try to kind of live like one and try to earn God's mercy. You'll never do it. Ne- it will, none of us can. What you're called to do is simply realize that you have nothing in you that can save you and that Christ has everything you need to give you what you need before God. Trust in him. Turn to him. Embrace him as Christ, as, as your Savior and Lord. Embrace this Jesus that came to die for people like you. Fellow Christians, we are called to be a living sacrifice. You know, the world has plenty of folks that confess one thing and yet live something different. There's a lot of so-called people that are like that red coffee seed still hanging on the tree. 
completely not fulfilling its purpose, completely untransformed. It'll just perish. Friends, if you've truly been a recipient of mercy, then your life will be changed. Listen, church, if you say you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, these two verses simply say this, live like it. If you say you believe in the mercies of God, live like it. I close with this from these words from the Apostle Paul. First of all, from his own testimony in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, It is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he exhorts us by saying, You are not your own. Did you hear that? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the gospel and we're so thankful for your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Father, we realize today that apart from this mercy, Lord, none of us would have hope. None of us would be here today. None of us would have any kind of hope beyond this world much less any kind of purpose in this life. So Father, would you stir in us as your people today this deep abiding affection for you. Lord, would the mercies of God just be renewed in our hearts and lives today in a way that, that, that lead us forward in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Lord, would you help us to see that, that Jesus is not just something we tack on in our life. He is someone that comes into us to change us entirely. That we would be lived out as living sacrifices to you. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed through the renewal of our minds that we may know and do your will to your glory and praise. And Father, my prayer is that if there are those that gathered with us today that they've never received this mercy, they don't, they don't know what it means to have mercy in their lives, to have their sins forgiven, to know what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would speak into their lives today, that you would open their eyes and their ears, and that you would draw them to yourself in a glorious way, that they may turn from their sins and place their faith and hope in you. Father, we thank you for this great word. Would you continue to use it in our lives beyond this moment, even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.